Chapter 19, Part 2 of The Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 19, Part 2. Eighth. The third billet upon my window. Dear sister, the platform is isolated, but the staircase which ascends to it communicates with another building at the extremity of which is the apartment of a lady who is a prisoner as well as thyself. Her name is a mystery, but the redbreast will tell thee if thou askest him. This is what thou desirest to learn from poor Gottlieb, and what he could not tell thee. Who then is this friend who knows, sees, and hears all that I do and all that I say? I am lost in conjectures. Is he then invisible? All this appears so wonderful to me that I am seriously interested by it. It seems that, as in my childhood, I live in the midst of a fairy tale, and that my red breast will suddenly speak. But if it be true to say of that charming little imp that he wants only speech, it is only too certain that he does absolutely want it, or that I cannot understand his language. He has become completely familiarized with me. He enters my chamber, he goes out, he returns, he is at home. I move, I walk about, he only flies off an arm's length and immediately comes back again. If he liked bread very much, he would love me more, for I cannot deceive myself respecting the cause of his attachment to me. It is hunger, and also the necessity and the desire of warming himself at my stove. If I can succeed in catching a fly, they are still so rare, I am certain he would come to take it from my fingers, for he already examines very closely the morsels which I present to him, and if the temptation were stronger, he would lay aside all ceremony. I now remember having heard Albert say that, to tame the most timid animals, in case they had the smallest spark of intelligence, there needed only a few hours of patience, proof against all trials. He had met a Zingaro, a pretended sorceress, who never remained a whole day in any corner of the forest, without having several birds coming to perch upon her shoulders. She was believed to have a charm, and she pretended, like Apollonius of Tiana, whose history Albert also related to me, to receive from them revelations respecting hidden things. Albert told me that her whole secret was the patience with which she had studied the instincts of those little creatures, besides a certain affinity of character which often exists between some beings of her own and beings of another species. At Venice, the people raise many birds and have a passion for them, which I can now understand. It is because that beautiful city separated from the mainland, is something like a prison. They excel there in the education of nightingales. The pigeons, protected by a special law and almost revered by their populace, come freely upon the old buildings and are so tame that in the streets and squares one must turn aside in order not to crush them when walking. The seagulls of the port perch upon the arms of the sailors. Thus there are famous bird fanciers at Venice, I was well acquainted when a child with a poor boy who carried on that business and to whom it was enough to entrust the wildest bird for an hour and he would return it to you as tame as if it had been brought up in a domesticated state.
I amuse myself by repeating these experiments with my red breast, and he becomes more and more familiar every minute. When I am without, he follows me, he calls me. When I place myself at the window, he hastens and comes to me. Would he love me? Could he love me? I, I feel that I love him, but he knows me and does not fear me. That is all. The child in the cradle loves his nurse no otherwise, doubtless. A child, what a tenderness it must inspire. Alas, I believe that we love passionately only what cannot return to us that love. In gratitude and devotedness, or at least indifference and passion, that is the eternal hymen of beings. Anzalito, thou didst not love me, and thou, Albert, who lovest me so much, I let thee die. Now I am reduced to love a redbreast, and I was complaining of not having deserved my lot. You may perhaps think, my friends, that I dare to jest on such a subject. No, my head perhaps wanders in solitude, my heart deprived of affections consumes itself, and this paper is wet with my tears. I had promised myself not to waste it, this precious paper, and here I am covering it with purilites. I find in them a great solace and cannot refrain. It has rained all day and I have not again seen Gottlieb. I have not been out to walk. I have been busy with the redbreast all this time, and this childishness has at last saddened me strangely. When the frolicsome and inconstant bird tried to leave me by pecking at the glass, I yielded to his desire. I opened the window from a feeling of respect for that holy liberty of which men do not fear to deprive their fellow men. But I was wounded by this momentary abandonment, as if this animal owed me something for so much care and love. I verily believe I am becoming crazy, and that before long I shall perfectly understand Gottlieb's wanderings. Ninth, what have I learned, or rather what do I think I have learned? For I know nothing as yet, but my imagination labors enormously. In the first place I have discovered the author of the mysterious billets. It is the last person I could have imagined. But this is no longer what astonishes me. No matter, I will relate to you the whole of this day. Early in the morning I opened my little window, composed of a single very large square of glass, quite clear, owing to the care with which I rub it in order to lose none of the little light which comes through it, and which the ugly grating disputes with me. Even the ivy threatens to invade me and to plunge me in darkness, but I do not dare take off a single leaf. This ivy lives, it is free in its nature of existence. To thwart it, to mutilate it, Still, I must resolve upon doing so. It feels the influence of the month of April. It hastens to grow. It extends. It fastens itself on every side. It fixes its roots in the stones, but it mounts. It seeks the air and the sun. The poor human thought does the same. I can now understand that there were formerly sacred plants, sacred birds. The red breast came at once and perched upon my shoulder without further ceremony. Then he began, according to his custom, to look at everything, to touch everything. Poor creature, there is so little here to amuse him. And yet he is free, he can live in the fields, and he prefers the prison, his old ivy and my sad cell. Can he love me? No, it is warm in his chamber and he likes my bread. I am frightened now at having tamed him so well. 
if he should enter into Schwartz's kitchen and become the prey of that ugly cat. My care would be the occasion of that horrible death, to be torn, devoured by a ferocious beast, and what to do then, we weak human beings, hearts without guile and without defense, other than to be tortured and destroyed by pitiless men who make us feel, by slowly killing us, their claws and their cruel teeth. The sun rose clear, and my cell was almost rose-color, as was formerly my chamber in the Corte Manelli, when the sun of Venice, but I must not think of that sun, it will not again rise upon my head. May you, O oh my friends, salute me for smiling Italy, e cieli immensi, and il firmamento lucido, which I probably shall never see again. I asked to go out. It was granted me, although earlier than usual. I call that going out. A platform thirty feet long, bordered by a marsh and enclosed within high walls. Still, this place is not without its beauty. At least I now imagine it beautiful in consequence of having contemplated it under all its aspects. At night it is beautiful from its very sadness. I am certain that there are here many persons as innocent as I am and much more unpleasantly situated. Dungeons which are always closed, where the day never enters, and which even the moon, that friend of desolate hearts, never visits. Ah, I was wrong to murmur, my God, if I had a part of power upon the earth, I should wish to make men happy. Gottlieb ran towards me, limping and smiling as much as his petrified mouth can smile. He was not troubled, he was left alone with me. Suddenly, by a miracle, Gottlieb began to talk like a reasonable being. I did not write to you last night, said he, and you found no billet on your window. That is because I did not see you yesterday, and you asked nothing of me. What do you say, Gottlieb? Is it you who write to me? And who else could do so? Did you not guess it was I? But I will not write to you uselessly now, since you are willing to talk with me. I do not wish to trouble you, but to serve you. Good Gottlieb, then you pity me. Then you feel an interest for me? Yes, since I know that you are a spirit of light. I am no more than you are, Gottlieb. You are mistaken. I am not mistaken. Do I not hear you sing? Then you love music? I love yours. It is agreeable to God and to my heart. Your heart is pious and your soul is pure. That I see, Gottlieb. I strive to render them so. The angels will assist me, and I shall overcome the spirit of darkness which weighs down my poor body, but which has not been able to get possession of my soul. By degrees, Gottlieb began to talk with enthusiasm, but without ceasing to be noble and pure in his poetical symbols. In fine, what shall I say to you? This crazy man attained a real eloquence in speaking of the goodness of God, of human misery, of future justice, of providence, of evangelic virtue, of the duties of the true believer, of the arts even, of music and poetry. I have not yet understood from what religion he has gathered all these ideas and this fervent exaltation, for it appeared to me neither Catholic nor Protestant, and even while frequently telling me that he believed in the only, the true religion, he gave me no information except that he is, without the knowledge of his parents, of some peculiar sect. 
I am too ignorant to divine which. I will study in future the mystery of this soul, singularly strong and beautiful, singularly diseased and afflicted. For in fact, poor Gottlieb is crazy, as Zdenko was in his poetry, as Albert also was in his sublime virtue. Gottlieb's insanity reappeared when, having spoken for some time with warmth, his enthusiasm got the better of him, and then he began to talk in an incoherently childish manner, which pained me, about the angel Redbreast and the demon cat, and also about his mother who had made an alliance with the cat and with the evil spirit that is in him. Finally about his father who had been changed into stone by a look of that poor Beelzebub, I succeeded in calming him and distracting him from these gloomy fancies and questioned him about the other prisoners. I had no longer any personal interest in learning these details since the billets, instead of being thrown upon my window from the upper part of the tower, as I had supposed, were pushed up from below by Gottlieb by some means which were doubtless very simple. But Gottlieb, obeying my desires with a singular docility, had inquired the day before respecting what I appeared to wish to know. He told me that the prisoner who dwells in the building in the rear of me was young and handsome, and that he had seen her. I was not paying much attention to his words when he suddenly told me her name, which made me shudder. That captive is called Amelia. Amelia? What a flood of anxiety! What a world of recollections that name awakens in me! I have known two Amelias who have both precipitated my destiny into the abyss by their confidences. Is this one the Princess of Prussia or the young Baroness of Rudolstadt? Doubtless neither the one nor the other. Gottlieb, who has no curiosity on his own account and who seems unable to think of making a step or a question, if I do not push him forward like an automaton, could tell me no more than this name Amelia. He has seen the captive, but he has seen her in his manner, that is, through a cloud. She must be young and handsome, Madame Schwartz says so. But he, Gottlieb, confesses that he knows nothing about it. He has only a presentiment, on perceiving her at her window, that she is not a good spirit, an angel. They make mystery of her family name. She is rich and spends freely with Schwartz. But she is all secret as I am. She never leaves her cell. She is often ill. This is all I have been able to learn. Gottlieb has only to listen to his parents' chat in order to know more, for they put no restraint upon themselves before him. He has promised to listen and to tell me how long this Amelia has been here. As to her other name, it appears that the Schwartzes do not know it. Could they be ignorant of it? Were she the abbess of Quinlinburg? Would the king have put his sister in prison? Princesses are put there as much as others, and more than others. The young baroness de Rudolstadt, why should she be here? By what right could Frederick have deprived her of liberty? Well, it is the curiosity of a recluse that torments me, and my comments upon a simple name belong also to an unoccupied and rather unhealthy imagination. No matter, I shall have a mountain on my heart until I know who is this companion in misfortune that bears a name so affecting to me. May 1st. Many days have passed since I have been able to write. Various events have occurred in this interval. 
I hasten to fill it up by relating them to you. In the first place, I have been ill. From time to time since I have been here, I have felt the attacks of a brain fever, resembling on a small scale that which I experienced on a great one at Giant's Castle, after having been into the subterranean in quest of Albert. I have states of painful wakefulness, interrupted by dreams during which I cannot say if I am awake or asleep, and in those moments it seems to me that I am always hearing that terrible violin playing its old bohemian airs, its hymns and songs of war. This affects me injuriously, and yet when the fancy begins to take possession of me, I cannot help listening and gathering with eagerness the feeble sounds which a distant breeze seems to waft towards me. Sometimes I imagine that the tones of the violin glide over the waters which sleep around the citadel. Sometimes that they descend from the top of the walls, and at others that they escape from the air hole of a dungeon. My head and heart are broken by it. And yet when night comes, instead of thinking to distract myself by writing, I throw myself on my bed and endeavor to fall into that half-sleep which brings to me my musical dream, or rather half-dream, for there is something real under it. A real violin does certainly resound in the chamber of some prisoner, but what does it play, and in what manner? It is too far off for me to hear anything more than interrupted notes. My diseased mind invents the rest, I cannot doubt it. It is my destiny henceforth neither to be able to doubt Albert's death, nor to be able to accept it as an absolutely fulfilled misfortune. It is apparently my nature to hope in despite of everything, and not to submit to the rigor of destiny. Three nights ago I was at last sound asleep when I was awakened by a slight noise in my chamber. I opened my eyes. The night was very dark and I could not distinguish anything. But I distinctly heard someone walking, though with precaution, near my bed. I thought it was Madame Schwartz who had taken the trouble of coming to satisfy herself respecting my condition, and I spoke to her. But I was answered only by a deep sigh, and the person went out on tiptoe. I heard my door shut and locked, and as I was much exhausted, I fell asleep again without paying much attention to the circumstance. On the next day I had so confused and indistinct a remembrance of it that I was not sure I had not dreamed it. That evening I had a last attack of fever more complete than the others, but which I much preferred to my unquiet wakefulness and my disconnected reveries. I slept soundly and dreamed a great deal, but I did not hear the gloomy violin, and each time that I woke I felt very clearly the difference between sleep and waking. In one of those intervals I heard the regular and strong breathing of a person asleep not far from me. I even seemed to distinguish someone in my armchair. I was not frightened. Madame Schwartz had come at midnight to bring me my tisane. I thought it must still be she. I waited some time without wishing to wake her, and when I thought I perceived that she woke of her own accord, I thanked her for her attention and asked her what o'clock it was. Then the person withdrew, and I heard, as it were, a stifled sob, so frightful that the sweat starts upon my forehead even now when I recall it. I cannot say why it made so much impression on me. It seemed to me that I was considered very ill, perhaps dying, and that they felt some pity for me, 
but I did not find myself ill enough to believe that I was in danger, and besides I was entirely reconciled to die a death so little painful, so little felt, in the midst of a life so little to be regretted. When Madame Schwartz entered my room at seven o'clock in the morning, as I had not fallen asleep again and had passed the last hours of the night in a state of perfect lucidity, I retained a very clear remembrance of this strange visit. I begged my jaileress to explain it to me, but she shook her head saying that she did not know what I meant and she had not returned since midnight and that, as she had all the keys of the cells entrusted to her care under her pillow when she slept, it was very certain that I had been dreaming or had had a vision. I was nevertheless so far from having been delirious that I felt well enough towards noon to wish to take the air. I descended to the esplanade, always accompanied by my redbreast, who seemed to congratulate me on the recovery of my strength. The weather was very pleasant, the heat begins to be felt here, and the breezes bring from the fields warm currents of pure air, vague perfumes of herbs which rejoice the heart however it may be afflicted. Gottlieb ran towards me. I found him a great deal changed and much more ugly than usual. Still there is an expression of angelic goodness and even of bright intelligence in the chaos of that face when lighted up. His great eyes were so red and swollen that I asked him if he suffered from them. I do suffer from them indeed, replied he, because I have cried a great deal. And what trouble have you then, my poor Gottlieb? Why, at midnight my mother came down from the cell, saying to my father, Number three is very ill this evening. She has quite a bad fever. We must send for the physician. I should not like to have her die in our hands. My mother thought I was asleep, but I had not been willing to go to sleep before knowing what she would say. I knew very well that you had the fever, but when I heard that it was dangerous, I could not help crying until sleep overcame me. But I verily believe I cried all night when I was asleep, for I woke this morning with my eyes on fire and my pillow all soaked with tears. Poor Gottlieb's attachment strongly affected me, and I thanked him for it by clasping his great black paw, which smells of leather and wax, a league off. Then the idea came to me that Gottlieb might well, in his simple zeal, have paid me that more than inconvenient nocturnal visit. I asked him if he had not risen and had not come to listen at my door. He assured me that he had not stirred, and I am now persuaded of it. It must be that the place where he sleeps is so situated that from my chamber I hear him breathe and groan through some crack in the wall, through the hiding place where I put my money in my journal, perhaps. Who knows if that opening does not communicate by some invisible passage with that in which Gottlieb also keeps his treasures, his book and his shoemaker's tools in the kitchen chimney. I have in this at least a very peculiar sympathy with Gottlieb, since we both, like the rats or the bats, have a poor nest in a hole of the wall where all our riches are buried in darkness. I was about to risk some questions thereupon when I saw issue from the lodging of the Schwartzes and advance upon the esplanade, a person whom I had not before seen here and whose appearance caused me an incredible terror, although I was not yet sure of not being mistaken respecting him. Who is that man? asked I of Gottlieb in a low voice. 
He is nothing good, replied he in the same tone. It is the new adjutant. See how Beelzebub puts up his back as he rubs against his legs. They know each other well, you see. But what is his name? Gottlieb was about to answer me when the adjutant said to him in a gentle voice and benevolent smile, pointing to the kitchen, Young man, you are wanted within. Your father calls you. This was only a pretext in order to be alone with me, and Gottlieb, having withdrawn, I found myself face to face. Guess with whom, friend Beppo? With their ferocious recruiter, whom we so unluckily met in the byways of the Bohemwald two years ago, with Mr. Mayer in person. I could no longer be in doubt, excepting that he is somewhat stouter. He is the same man, with his prepossessing, unceremonious air, his false look, his perfidious good nature, and his everlasting brom brom, as if he were playing on the trumpet with his mouth. From military music he had passed to providing food for cannon, and thence as a recompense for his loyal and honorable services, here he is an officer in garrison, or rather a military jailer, which after all fits him as well as the trade of traveling jailer in which he acquitted himself with so much grace. Mademoiselle, said he to me in French, I am your humble servant. You have quite a pretty little platform to walk upon, air, space, a fine view. I congratulate you upon it. It seems to me that you must have a very agreeable time in prison, taking into consideration that the weather is magnificent and that it is really pleasant to be at Spandau under so beautiful a sun. Brom, brom. These insolent railleries caused me such a disgust that I did not answer him. He was not disconcerted, and resuming his talk in Italian, Excuse me, I was speaking to you in a language which perhaps you do not understand. I forgot that you are an Italian, an Italian cantatrice, are you not? A superb voice, I am told. Such as you see me, I am a decided lover of music. Therefore, I feel disposed to render your existence as agreeable as my orders will permit. Ah, where the devil have I had the happiness to see you? I know your face perfectly, pawn honor. Doubtless at the Berlin Theater, where I sang this winter. No, I was in Silesia. I was under adjutant at Glatz. Fortunately, that devil of a trank made his escapade while I was on a round. I mean to say, a mission, on the frontiers of Saxony, otherwise I should not have been promoted and should not be here, where I find myself very comfortable on account of the proximity of Berlin. For it is a very sad life, mademoiselle, that of an officer in garrison. You can't imagine how wearisome it is, far from any great city in a barren country, for me who am passionately fond of music. But where the deuce, then, can I have had the pleasure of meeting you? I do not remember, sir, ever to have had that honor. I must have seen you on some stage in Italy or at Vienna. You have traveled a great deal. How many theaters have you performed in? And as I did not answer, he resumed with his careless impudence. No matter, I shall recollect. What was I saying to you? Ah, you are inward also, are you not? No, sir. But are you not our secret? 
It is you who are called the Porporina. Yes, sir. That is it, prisoner number three. Well, don't you want a little diversion, some society? By no means, sir, replied I quickly, thinking he was about to propose to me his own. As you please, that's a pity. There is here another prisoner, very well educated, a charming woman, by my faith, who I am sure would have been delighted to make acquaintance with you. May I ask of you her name, sir? She is called Amelia. Amelia who? Amelia, brum, brum, by my faith, I don't know. You are curious, I see. That is our prison complaint. I repented having repelled the advances of Mr. Mayor, for after having despaired of knowing this mysterious Amelia and given up all hope of it, I felt myself attracted towards her anew by a feeling of commiseration and also by the desire of clearing up my suspicions. I therefore tried to be a little more amiable with this disgusting mayor, and he soon offered to place me in connection with the prisoner number two. It is thus that he designates this Amelia. If this infraction of my sentence does not compromise you, sir, replied I, and I can be of use to that lady who is said to be ill with sorrow and envoi, brum, brum, then you take matters according to the letter. You are still a good child. It is that pendant of a Schwartz who has made you afraid of the orders. The orders, what are they but a bugbear? They are good for the porters, for the turnkeys, but we officers, and in uttering this word, Mayor bridle up like a man who is not accustomed to bear so honorable a title. We shut our eyes upon innocent infractions. The king himself would shut his were he in our place. Here, mademoiselle, when you wish to obtain anything, only apply to me, and I promise you that you shall not be uselessly thwarted and oppressed. I am naturally humane myself, God made me so, and then I love music. If you would sing something for me from time to time, in the evening, for example, I would come and listen to you from here, and with that you can obtain from me all you wish. I will impose upon your good nature as little as possible, Mr. Mayor. Mayor, cried the adjutant, suddenly interrupting the brum brum which still floated upon his black and cracked lips. Why do you call me Mayor? I am not called Mayor. Where the devil did you fish up that name of mayor? Excuse me, Sir Adjutant, replied I. It was an absence of mind. I had a singing master of that name and have been thinking of him all the morning. A singing master? That was not I. There are many mayors in Germany. My name is Nantuil. I am a Frenchman by birth. Well, Sir Officer, how shall I announce myself to this lady? She does not know me and would perhaps refuse my visit, as I almost refused to become acquainted with her just now. One becomes so savage when living alone. Oh, whoever she is, that beautiful lady will be charmed to find someone with whom to talk, I assure you. Will you write a line to her? But I have nothing to write with. That is impossible. Have you no money, then? If I had any, Mr. Schwartz is incorruptible. And besides, I do not know how to corrupt. Well, in that case, I will myself conduct you this evening to number two, after, however, you have sung something for me. I was frightened at the thought that Mr. Mayor, 
or Mr. Nantuil, as he is now pleased to be called, perhaps wished to introduce himself into my chamber, and I was about to refuse when he made me understand his intentions better, either because he had not thought of honoring me with a visit, or because he read my horror and repugnance on my countenance. I will listen to you from the platform which tops the tower you inhabit, said he. The voice rises, and I shall hear very well. Then I will send a woman to open your door and conduct you. It would not be proper, in fact, for me to have the appearance of inciting you to disobedience myself, though, after all, vroom, vroom, in such a case there is a very easy method of getting out of the scrape. We blow out the brains of prisoner number three with a pistol and say that she has been surprised in the very act of an attempt to escape. Eh, eh, the idea is funny, is it not? In prison we must always have cheerful ideas. Your very humble servant, Mademoiselle Porporina, till this evening. I lost myself in comments upon the obliging willingness of this wretch, and in spite of myself I had a horrible fear of him. I could not believe that a soul so narrow and so base had enough love for music to act thus solely for the pleasure of hearing me. I suppose that the prisoner in question was no other than the Princess of Prussia, and that, by order of the king, an interview was arranged between us in order that we might be watched, and those state secrets discovered which it was supposed she had confided to me. With this idea, I feared the interview as much as I had desired it, for I am absolutely ignorant what truth there may be in that pretended conspiracy in which I am accused of being an accomplice. Nevertheless, considering it my duty to brave all in order to carry some moral assistance to a companion in misfortune, whoever she may be, I began to sing at the appointed hour for the tin ears of Mr. Adjutant. I sang very poorly. The audience did not inspire me. I still had some fever, and besides, I felt that he listened to me only for form's sake. Perhaps even he did not listen to me at all. When eleven o'clock struck, I was seized with quite a childish fear. I imagined that Mr. Mayer had received a secret order to get rid of me, and that he was going to kill me in good earnest, as he had predicted to me under the form of an agreeable jest, as soon as I should make a step outside of my cell. When my door opened, I trembled in all my limbs. An old woman, very dirty and very ugly, much more ugly and more dirty even than Madame Schwartz, made me a sign to follow her, and preceded me up a narrow and steep staircase built in the interior of the wall. When we were at the top, I found myself on the platform of the tower, about thirty feet above the esplanade on which I walked during the day, and eighty or a hundred feet above the ditch which washes all this part of the building for quite a long extent. The horrible old woman who guided me told me to wait there a moment, and disappeared I know not where. My anxiety was relieved, and I experienced such a satisfaction that finding myself in a pure air, under a magnificent moon, and at a considerable elevation, which allowed me at last to contemplate a vast horizon, that I was not troubled at the solitude in which I was left. The broad still waters upon which the citadel throws its black and motionless shadows, the trees and the fields which I could vaguely distinguish at a distance on the shore, the immensity of the sky, 
and even the free flight of the bats wandering in the night. My God, how great and majestic all that appeared to me after two months spent in contemplating the face of a wall and in counting the few stars which pass in the narrow zone of firmament that can be seen from my cell. But I had no leisure to enjoy it long. A noise of footsteps obliged me to turn, and all my fears were reawakened when I saw myself face to face with Mr. Mayor. Signor, said he to me, I am in despair at being obliged to inform you that you cannot see prisoner number two, at least at present. She is a very capricious person, it appears to me. Yesterday she testified the greatest desire to have some society, but just now I propose yours to her, and this is what she replied to me. The prisoner number three, she who sings in the tower and whom I hear every evening, Oh, I know her voice well, and you need not tell me her name. I am infinitely obliged to you for the companion you wish to give me. I should prefer never again to see a living soul than to undergo the sight of that unhappy creature. She is the cause of all my misfortunes, and may heaven make her expiate them as severely as I myself expiate the imprudent friendship I had for her. This, signora, is the opinion of the said lady respecting you. It remains to be seen if it be deserved or not. That concerns, as they say, the tribunal of your conscience. As to myself, I have nothing to do with it, and I am ready to reconduct you to your cell as soon as you please. At once, sir, replied I, extremely mortified at having been accused of treachery before a wretch of his character, and feeling in the depths of my heart a great deal of bitterness against that one of the two Amelias who testified towards me so much injustice or ingratitude. I do not hurry you so much as that, replied the new adjutant. You seem to take pleasure in looking at the moon. Look at her then at your leisure. That costs nothing and does no harm to anyone. I had the imprudence to profit yet a moment by the condescension of this knave. I could not resolve to tear myself so quickly from the beautiful spectacle of which I was about to be deprived, perhaps forever, and in spite of myself, Mayer produced upon me the effect of a wicked lackey, too much honored by awaiting my orders. He profited by my contempt so far as to be emboldened to wish to engage in conversation. Do you know, Signora, that you sing devilish well? I have never heard anything stronger in Italy where I have nevertheless frequented the best theaters and passed in review the best artists. Where did you make your debut? For how long a time have you been roaming over the world? You have traveled a great deal. And as I pretended not to hear his interrogations, he added, without being discouraged, you sometimes travel on foot, dressed as a man. This question made me shudder, and I hastened to reply in the negative. But he continued, Come, you are not willing to allow it, but I, I forget nothing, and I have found in my memory a pleasant adventure which you cannot have forgotten either. I do not know what you refer to, sir, returned I, leaving the battlement of the tower to resume the road to my cell. One moment, one moment, said Mayor. Your key is in my pocket, and you cannot enter in that manner without my conducting you. Permit me, my beautiful child, to say two words. Not one more, sir. I wish to return to my room, and I regret having left it. 
So you played the prude, as if nothing was known of your adventures. Then you thought I was so simple as not to recognize you when you were strolling over the Bomerwald with a not-very-bad-looking, black-eyed little fellow. Bah! I was indeed carrying off the stripling for the armies of the King of Prussia, but the last would not have been for his nose. No, no, though they do say he has had a fancy for you and that you have come here for having attempted to boast of it. What will you have? Fortune has caprices against which it is very useless to kick. You have fallen from very high, but I advise you not to be too proud and to content yourself with whatever offers. I am only a small officer in garrison, but I am more powerful here than a king whom nobody knows and nobody fears, because he commands from too high and too far off to be obeyed. You see well that I have power to elude the orders and to soften your sentence. Do not be ungrateful, and you will see that the protection of an adjutant at Spandau is worth quite as much as that of a king at Berlin. You understand me? Oh, don't run away, don't cry out, don't be mad. It would occasion a scandal without any use. I shall say what I please, and you, you will not be believed. Come, I don't want to frighten you. I am naturally gentle and compassionate. Only make your reflections, and when I see you again, remember that I can dispose of your lot, cast you into a dungeon, or surround you with diversions and amusements, cause you to die of hunger without being called to account, or give you the means of escape without being suspected. Reflect, I say, I give you time. And as I did not answer, terrified at not being able to withdraw myself from the insult of such pretensions and from the cruel humiliation of hearing them expressed, this odious man added, thinking doubtless that I hesitated, And why should you not decide at once? Are twenty-four hours necessary to recognize the only reasonable course to be pursued? and to respond to the love of an honest man, still young and rich enough to provide for you, in a foreign country, a much more agreeable residence than this ugly stronghold. Speaking thus, the ignoble recruiter approached me and seemed, by his manner at once awkward and impudent, to wish to bar my passage and seize my hands. I ran towards the battlements of the tower, quite determined to throw myself headlong into the ditch rather than allow myself to be stained by the most trifling of his caresses. But at this moment a strange sight struck my eyes, and I hastened to draw the adjutant's attention towards that object in order to turn it from myself. This was my salvation, but alas, it almost cost the life of a being perhaps more worthy than I. Upon the elevated rampart which bounds the other side of the ditch in front of the esplanade, a figure, which appeared gigantic, was running or rather leaping on the rampart with a rapidity and skill bordering on the miraculous. Arrived at the extremity of that rampart, which is flanked by a tower at each end, the phantom threw itself upon the roof of the tower, which is on a level with the balustrade, and scaling that steep cone with the lightness of a cat, seemed to lose itself in the air. "'What the devil is that?' cried the adjutant, forgetting his character as a gallant to resume the anxieties of a jailer. "'A prisoner escaping? The devil take me, and the sentinel asleep. Par le corps de deux.' "'Sentinel,' cried he with the voice of a stentor, "'look out for yourself. Alert, alert!' And running towards a battlement from which hangs an alarm bell, 
he put it in motion with a vigor worthy of so remarkable a professor of infernal music. I have never heard anything more discordant than that toxin, interrupting with the sharp and clanging tone the august silence of the night. It was a savage cry of violence and brutality troubling the harmony of the free breathings of the waters and the breeze. In an instant, all was in commotion in the prison. I heard the ominous sound of the muskets in the hands of the sentinels, who cocked their pieces and leveled them at random at the first object that showed itself. The esplanade was illuminated by a red light which dimmed the beautiful azure reflections of the moon. It was a lantern lighted by Mr. Schwartz. Signals answered each other from one rampart to another, and the echoes sent them back with a plaintive and enfeebled voice. The alarm gun soon threw its terrible and solemn note into this diabolical symphony. Heavy steps sounded on the tiles. I could see nothing, but I heard all these noises and my heart was oppressed with fear. Mayer had left me precipitately, but I did not think of rejoicing at my deliverance. I bitterly reproached myself for having pointed out to him, without knowing what it was, the escape of some unhappy prisoner. Frozen with terror, I awaited the termination of the adventure, shuddering at the sound of every gun fired at intervals, listening with anxiety if the cries of the wounded fugitive did not announce his disaster. End of chapter 19, part 2, read by Bryce Cries, Youngstown.